I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This episode is one of a number that we're recording alongside on Helix, a digital conference that is hosted by One Nucleus. Uh, in line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Human Ashrafian, uh, who's going to offer us some insights from the perspective of an investor in biotech <coughs> from early research right the way through to uh, your clinical development. Uh, Human is a managing partner at SV Health Sciences, one of the more foremost uh, backers of the life science uh, companies in the preeminent biotech clusters, whether that's in the US or, or here in the UK. Uh, he has founded five SV companies, uh, Citrix, Anara Bio, Zaradex, T-Rex Bio, and Alchemab. And he's also a director of uh, the SV portfolio company, Karis uh, Therapeutics. Fuman also actually serves on the uh, Dementia Discovery Fund uh, Investment Committee. So Fuman, um, I hope you and those you care about are, are safe and, and keeping well. And thanks so much for, for, for joining me. Morning, thanks Mike. Um, and thank you for having me. Um, it's a curious way to, to communicate um, in these times, um, but it's lovely to be here. Yeah, great. You're absolutely right. Um, so an analysis of biotech investment trends that was recently published by the uh, UK Bioindustry Association, uh, based on data, in fact, that uh, was provided by DRG and, and, and BioWorld, uh, suggested that fund flows into the sector actually are remaining robust. And I just wonder, is that something, does that resonate with you? Um... Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. I think, I think that's a really interesting question. Not only is it, does it resonate, but stacks very nicely with data in the sort of, uh, in the macro uh, uh, of what's going on. Um, although there's been a recent correction over the last couple of weeks, perhaps, there's been substantial inflows into um into biotech funds uh, and and actually into uh, into um, into the public markets by retail investors who are interested in biotech. Um, it's been a really interesting time. So as you as you'll intuit, a number of funds, even um, in spite of COVID or because of COVID, have been able to do very substantial fundraisings. Um, you know, you'll have seen Arch, Flagship, and Atlas. Uh, then bio closed very large funds. We're due to close our own very soon. And importantly, a number of UK and European funds um, uh, uh, have, have done very nicely recently. Um, I'd like to uh, call out um, BBB, who've done a very nice job um, supporting UK funds. Um, so there's been, there's been inflows at fund level, there's retail investor inflows into the public markets. And importantly, uh, and amazingly, quite a lot of deals done during the COVID era. Um, uh, historically, you'll have uh, um, seen the, the Gilead deal with um, uh, Galapagos. BioNTech raised their monster round. Um, and, and even in our portfolio, um, we've seen uh, a number of deals done. Uh, I did one on Monday. And my first portfolio company, Citrix, did a deal with Eli Lilly and co uh, over the summer. Um, so I think I think it's fair to say there's been a very substantial um, flow of funds and flow of capital into funds into the public markets, and uh, excitingly, 
uh, quite a lot of funds flowing into the U into UK and Europe. So, uh, I mean, I mean that is interesting. So, uh, so social distancing and travel restrictions don't seem to have had an impact um, at that level. How, how, however, has it you know, affected your ability to support either existing portfolio companies or maybe initiate due diligence on ones that you're looking to uh, put some money into? Um, so that's a complicated question. I'll try and break it down into its uh, relative components. Um, I think that calling out what's been hard, um, obviously hiring is particularly difficult. Um, so the recruitment of talent uh, when you can't do face-to-face -face meetings um, has been rather challenging. Um, um, and people have obviously become much more adept at doing interviews um, digitally or, or taking advantage of our many green spaces, both in the UK, Europe and the US, uh, to, to have um, walking interviews. So I think, I think recruitment has been a bit of a challenge. Uh, and I think there's been a, a slowing down in the in, broadly in recruitment. And I think that um, recruiting firms affirm that view. And, and the second challenge has been, of course, that uh, we've been very thoughtful about how we construct um, commitments and reserves um, uh, to our companies, uh, both in the UK and the US. In the UK, we're very lucky um, the government has been extremely thoughtful and the implementation of all sorts of um, uh, um, capability, including non-dilutive funding, um, the furlough scheme, which we've largely not used, um, but also the Futures Fund has been extremely helpful in supporting companies that need it. So I would say that uh, the, the, the two challenges around recruiting and financing have been managed as we do normally by constructing um, uh, runways for our companies uh, with and without government support to, to ensure they're, they're well protected. And we, we generally have deep reserves for our companies. So that, that's not really been a problem. Um, SC is a transatlantic fund. So, um, and, and we, we obviously have a, a very substantial network, which, which is mature. So actually, it's been pretty easy to communicate with Zoom. I'd say, I'd say there's been almost no um, disruption in um, any of our ongoing diligence and communication activities. Um, and one of the advantages, of course, is people aren't traveling. So they're always available. I think we're working harder than we ever have sitting at our desks. Um, so I haven't seen any change in uh, interaction, both internally and externally. And then finally, there was a question about diligence. Well, we, um, we closed the deal on Monday. So diligence, the deal was on the term sheet um, uh, around the time of lockdown. So it was an advanced stage of diligence anyway. Um, but, but I think it's important to say that both from a UK PLC and US perspective, we're open for business. Right, right. So um, we've seen um, you know, some of the uh, companies in your portfolio have actually diverted some efforts to respond to uh, the COVID-19 challenge. So can you, you know, highlight you know, some examples um, and you know, outline the process that actually took place at sort of the management uh, your board level to actually enable that shift uh, in focus to take place? Um, so we are very active um, uh, uh, board participants. 
Um, um, as, as you said, I, I founded a number of these companies and I'm very close. I chair many of them um, and I'm rather close to all the CEOs. So the, the process is a rather organic one, I would say. Um, all the companies are very thoughtful about staying on mission. COVID is ultra important, but there are other disorders out there, whether they're immunoinflammation, cancer, orphan disorders or otherwise. Um, so, so the first thing to say is all the companies, actually I, I, I'm, I'm um, gratified and honored by our entrepreneurs and teams because um, they very quickly configured themselves without much um, nudging required from the board or anyone else actually to ensure that their business as usual continued, you know, shift working in a lab, setting up appropriate social distancing, um, um, ensuring that only the people that need to go into the lab, go into the lab, etc. And really very creative ways, uh, which our C-suites have, have um, 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 implemented to ensure work goes on as usual. So part one of the response to you is, um, through a lot of creativity, and we can double click on some of those, um, our work continued. And we really didn't lose much ground during the COVID era. Um, the only groups that did lose ground, I think we'll touch on this perhaps a little later, are, are companies that had uh, clinical, clinical assets that were in the midst of clinical trials. Um, the companies, um, for example, Alchemab in my portfolio, that in, uh, in the SP portfolio, that um, uh, had, a, had a component of focus on um, um, COVID, did it very organically. They approached, uh, the management team laid out a very clear structure on how work would go on as usual, but COVID work would go on alongside it. Um, uh, how that, what the financing would be required internally and externally, how they'd work with governments and other organizations, um, uh, and, and how they, they, that, that work would ultimately proceed and lead to value for patients, which is ultimately what we're here to do. Um, and I would say that systematic approach to uh, COVID was one that then would come up to the board, we'd modify it and, and move forward. And, and just to call out um, the, the core team at Alchemab, for example, uh, Alex Leach, who's the CEO, Jane Osborne, um, uh, uh, the CSO, and um, Olivia Cavalan, who's um, the head of operations in BD, very quickly put a robust plan together and, and all we really needed to do is um, uh, provide some editorial content and move on. Um, the last thing I'd say actually is though that it's uh, it's not a one-stop shop. You know, we we continue to monitor what's going on in the ecosystem. We're very proud of Kate Bingham, one of my partners, who now leads the UK Vaccine Task Force, um, uh, and um, we monitor what she and others are doing. Uh, and what's being produced in the ecosystem and what's happening with, in terms of epidemiological trends and marry that up to what the companies are doing. And that is the job of the board. Actually, that, that sort of brings us sort of, you know, nicely to the fact that you know, SV has a, a, a proven track record for you know, establishing sort of new, new companies, new businesses. So can you actually sort of describe how you go about identifying you know, interesting programs and you know what what needs to be there to to whet your appetite in the first place yeah so i it's you know it sounds rather simplistic but it's about people technology and financing right that's that's largely what we do um and um 
I'll speak for the UK for now, but actually I think it's also true of Europe and the US. There's a remarkable amount of wonderful things going on at the moment. You know, um, science is accelerating to a singularity. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Um, just look at uh, how we dealt with flu in the last century and how we're dealing with um, uh, uh, a similar pandemic now. You know, if you if you if you see the degree of agency um, that we have as a science community to deal with it, whether it's vaccines, whether it's convalescent serum, whether it's um, uh, monoclonal antibodies or other technologies, small molecules, um, science has come on a long way, driven by a number of waves, including the the, the sequencing revolution. So um, we're privileged to be sitting at a time. Um, like no other, where we can impact on the on human disease in ways that were unimaginable um, uh, 50 or 100 years ago. So we're very lucky. There's an embrace de richesse of stuff out there. And our job is to work with partners, for example, in our case, CRUK, the Francis Crick Institute, and the multitude of UK universities who are doing great work. Um, Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial, other London universities, but also far beyond. We've done deals with Cardiff and are in the process of doing deals in Scotland and elsewhere. Um, it's important to say there's a there's this huge um, uh, source of value for patients in, in in the science that's being done, and our job is to go and pick out stuff that looks like it's ready to to have the value and inflection and be translatable. So how do we do this? Um, at SV Health Investors, we're super connected to academic groups but also to industrial groups that are doing this work. There's constant dialogue. It's again, not a one-stop shop. Most of the opportunities arise out of recurrent conversations to see what's um, translatable and relevant and that has a potential patient value and line of sight to a therapeutic within a reasonable time frame and a financing window. So um, how do we do this? We, we identify those opportunities. We, talk to investigators before stuff's even published. Um, we help them refine it. Often it's a two or three year process to refine even before we look at it within our own portfolio. And that academic engagement is critical. Um, and then when it's ready, um, we work with the, the other important part of what I described is the entrepreneurs. So typically we bring in experienced entrepreneurs early to, to work with those academics and build them. And the recipe is very simple. Um, you have the core founders, who bring in the academic knowledge, sometimes with IP, sometimes without. Um, you wrap around them a skilled entrepreneurial team who know what they're doing, and you wrap around them a board who's there to support, guide, finance, and drive to exit. And in that way, we generate what the most important thing we do is patient value. Okay, so, so, so we'll, we'll return to that, but in, in terms of, sort of you're looking at the the science and technology is it that you're starting off with that there is a scientific and medical you know a technical challenge and you go off to look to sort of see you know is there a solution somewhere or is it somebody comes along and says actually we've got you know this this interesting um observation we've made this interesting discovery and then you sort of think, right, oh, that could be you know, applied in a particular area. So I'm, I'm just sort of trying to sort of 
that sort of that scouting mission what does that look like yeah, it's a bit of both really i mean it's extremely rare for a founder to come along and say look i've got this very shiny jewel i've shined it up I, i've already uh, buffed it up and it's ready to go just it's it's it, uh, it may happen a little bit more in the united states and we're clearly active in in, in the u.s um, where the, the where the academics are a little bit more um, savvy about um, commercial activity, I think we're 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 actually catching up very quickly. Um, but it's very rare that a, um, a full time academic comes along and says, "Look, I've got this thing; it's ready to go. This is the TPP. This is what I construct as a business case. These are the value inflections, and this is how I drag it." I mean, it would be wonderful, of course. It just doesn't happen. Um, so typically, what happens is. Um, that myself, Kate or Mike Ross, the three managing partners, supported by our venture partner pool, will be um, talking to people. And we'll often have two or three conversations and someone will come along with something that's kind of interesting. And we will think, oh, well actually that would solve this kind of problem. And we'll have, as I say, we'd have two or three conversations, maybe bring in some experts, maybe hold what we call the prepared minds exercise, where we bring in academics and um, uh, commercial people, um, put them together and have a discourse. And only through that process of dialogue do you refine um, uh, 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 investable and therapeutic opportunity. Um, so it, it, it's a journey rather than a conversation. Okay, so, uh, so you know, the, one of the sort of the biggest challenges is translating those interesting discoveries into uh, you know, an innovation that actually can, can benefit uh, patients. You mentioned earlier about you know, one of the things that you do is you, you look to find your entrepreneurs who have successfully done this before um, to, to help build out your, your teams. You know, what, what, what are the challenges in that sort of translation from the interesting discovery into, in, into, into something that's going to be useful? Are there and, and, and like, what, are the, um, what are the approaches that you take to, uh, to meet those challenges? Yeah, so I, I think that there are all manner of challenges, and and we can construct those challenges in different ways. Um, you you can you can perceive them from the from from the perspective of risk. You know, you can go from the sort of target risk, biology risk, drugging risk, development risk. Uh, you know, ultimately financing risk and regulatory risk. Um, I think that's one way to look at it. It's kind of sterile, and it doesn't really help you think about um, the real challenges. I think fundamentally, um, the challenges now relate, I mean, all of those are germane, but, but the big challenge I see is achieving the key value inflection, which is the first in human study, and indeed the first in patient study. I'm pleased to say that in the UK, we're batting it out of the ballpark, something that one of my US colleagues said to me a couple of days ago. Um, um, we are increasingly looking at that event horizon, which is first in patient, um, and the reason we're looking at that is a because we're blessed with the NHS. We have a we have a we have a um, collection of patients in which in whom we can do clinical trials and to provide benefit to those patients by being part of the clinical trials. But by having that capability and an aligned regulator in the MHRA who is amenable to uh, thoughtful. Um, um, uh, vigilant but um, pragmatic introduction of drugs early into patients 
We've seen that with COVID and the NHRA's wonderful response to COVID. Um, um, what it means is that we can we can scope out where that value inflection is, which is that first in patient study. And I, I discriminate between first in human and first in patient for obvious reasons. Um, um, and, and, and then the challenge becomes how to get there. So increasingly the, the dialogue when, when we see a great piece of technology is, is not what was a traditional pharma, very old traditional pharma perspective of kind of interesting biology, we can drug it, let's do that and we'll figure out who the patient is. The, the challenge and the opportunity today, particularly in the UK but beyond, is to say day one, who are we treating and what are we trying to achieve? And the challenge is to build, you know, to, to shape the path of risk um, from early science to the patient on day one. And I think that scrutiny and focus is going to pay dividends um, um, patient care. And how do you ensure that you are able to factor in the sort of, I guess, the patient voice into those early discussions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I, I think it's something that we need to continue improving on. Um, the, the two aspects of the patient's voice. One is the patient need and the patient's perspective of their need. And often this sort of, for example, um, crystallizes out in um, symptomatic versus disease modifying treatments. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a different tack. Um, the first thing we, that is increasingly done by reputable biotech and venture-backed uh, companies is to, in order to have the patient voice, we increasingly have clinicians um, uh, early in the process. So historically, as you'll know, there was a sort of modular piece where discovery was done and then development was done and then the clinical aspects were done. That doesn't, at least in our portfolio, happen anymore. We, we have a more nuanced stakeholder base when we look at opportunities. And it, it's, it's totally usual for funds like ours to ask, who are you planning to treat? And what do they look like? And the answer cannot be heart failure. The answer has to be, you know, this particular substrata of heart failure was particularly likely to benefit because of the biology. And you'd be surprised how frequently that conversation happens at the same time um, as we're beginning to think about target validation of a, of a target. And we very early on in our process have a TCP, um, a target, uh, concept profile and a TPP target product profile, absolutely at the point where targets make portfolio entry. So the patient voice is heard um, uh, both vicariously through the clinician, but also actually we've had examples where we brought patients into the company to talk to the scientists and say, you know, what really bothers me about my rheumatoid arthritis or about my angina or about, you know, my colorectal cancer is so-and-so. I mean, you know, I think, I think we, we actually hear the patient. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, SV, um, as I say, you're, you're, you're very active. Is, is there a sort of, you know, a sort of, uh, a, sort of a clinical sweet spot for, 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 for the business? And also, you mentioned that you've got activity uh, here in the UK and you have activity in the States. Is there sort of a geographic focus as well on, 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 on what you're doing? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say we have a, a, a clinical sweet spot. If you if you look at 
the partnership in the Impact Medicine Fund, our fund, um, Kate, Matt Rosson, um, myself have uh, complementary and um, uh, um, overlapping skills actually in 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 different um, um, stages of drug development. So we're very thoughtful about portfolio construction. So uh, as I said to you, my my latest investment, uh, which was Monday, the days seem to be merging now. Um, two days ago um, was a phase two ready asset that's about to pull the trigger on three phase two studies. Um, but we will also uh, we we have companies in in the in the fund that started with a white sheet of paper and haven't yet nominated targets. So uh, we look through this in terms of uh, uh, um, the lens of what's right for our LPs. Um, what's right for our patients, uh, portfolio construction, etc. Um, uh, but we'll do very early, very late, very late stuff that's in the middle. And our geography um, uh, is is typically two thirds UK and a third US. But it's kind of fluid, and we don't have any dogmatic view of how we invest. Right, um, and yet. I mean, you're on the investment committee for the uh, Dementia Discovery Fund. In fact, it's the other way around. I think it's two thirds US that's in that portfolio, one third, one third in the UK. With the, um, the Dementia Discovery Fund, what what are the areas you're you're, you're most keen to to back? And and again, you know, what does an opportunity uh, already to have, you know, already have in place? uh to attract your interest yeah i think i think dementia is obviously a a, a, um, a neurodegeneration more broadly is a is a massive and important unmet medical need today and is set to grow with the demographic transition so um, um what are we keen to back we are the mission of the fund is to um identify and develop you know areas of science that will be transformative in the treatment of dementia. And we, we, we've got an incredible responsibility actually with that fund. Um, uh, there aren't too many theme funds out there and uh, dementia, neurodegeneration is a great one. So we think about the, the, the um, um, fund in a number of ways. It's obviously a very clear commercial entity and our aim is to identify transformative therapeutics. Um, and our primary role is to look at disease modifying therapies, but also symptomatic therapies, uh, and and all that goes with those, the ancillary elements to those, you know, tools for stratification, um, including digital tools. So, um, uh, although while our primary focus is therapeutics, we will consider anything that wraps around our therapeutics that um, enables those therapeutics to be transformative. Um, to be very specific. Um, we, we have multiple vectors at which we look. There are areas that we care about, um, including glial health and neuroinflammation, synaptic health, um, membrane biology and lysosomal disease, uh, and uh, um, uh, mitochondrial health and disease and autophagy. Those are core areas, but we underpin all of those areas with um, platform technologies. And we are happy to do standalone or work with companies that have existing platform technologies and help them direct those to neurodegeneration. Looking at it alternatively, uh, we'll look at all the relevant 
diseases in that group, whether it's tauopathies, whether it's Parkinson's disease and synuclonopathies, whether of course at the center of all of this is Alzheimer's disease and many others. So we, we, we have a sort of uh, mechanistic perspective, we have a, a, a disease lens, um, and we have a platform perspective. And we'll look at early all the way through to clinical assets. I guess the, we remain opportunistic, uh, um, um, and importantly, our, our North Star is to identify um, outstanding transformative modalities in order to treat neurodegeneration. So you've got, you've got 16 companies in the portfolio at the moment. Um, so how many do you sort of you anticipate, I mean, uh, are going to be sort of you know, backed by, by, by the fund? Uh, yeah, so great question. So um, small update, we have 19 companies in the portfolio, in fact, now. Small update over the last uh, couple of months. Um, um, three have been back added recently, um, uh, all three in the US, actually, um, to, to your first point. Um, we can, we'll, we'll continue to invest um, the fund, but of course our, our big job is to continue curating those companies, and many of them are doing very well. So um, we will add more to the number of companies, but we're, we're also doubling down on those that we've already invested. Right. So um, you, you mentioned digital health and, you know, one of the things that, you know, in in our research uh, at DRG, we've seen a sort of, you know, a, a massive uptick in uh, you know, digital health you know, activity, you know, particularly sort of with, uh, you know, physicians and, and, and their, their um, interactions with, with, with patients. I'm just wondering whether with sort of COVID-19 that there are you know, areas that may have been uh, not a priority in the past have actually sort of been pushed to the fore um, in, you know, so whether that's in digital health or in, in other areas. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll answer those in three short bullet points. The first is digital health is kind of interesting. Um, uh, historically, dinosaurs like me have been prone to thinking about things as therapeutics or diagnostics. And digital is an interesting area. Um, uh, that marries those two up increasingly. Uh, I think that the, the natural distinction between those uh, entities is blurring. Um, uh, so I think digital health is quite interesting, and particularly in the dementia space where um, diagnosis is such a problem. I think I think digital health is, is is making a big difference. One of our venture partners and a close friend, Ruth McKernan, is launching a digital health um, company in the in the neurodegeneration space. Um, look out for that. I think it'll be very exciting. Um, so yes, we as a as a manager in terms of SP Health investors, and at each of our funds is looking at digital in a greater way. I think you'll see a a resurgence, and it's a necessary resurgence in infectious disease, whether it be in in the space of antibiotics, antibiotic resistance, or antivirals. I think that will be some something that um, um, across our ecosystem there'll be greater attention. Um, uh, lavished upon um, but but you know it's also true that um, science marches on I, I, if you if you um, if you open the latest issue of nature um, there's as much about um, senescence uh, uh, um, t-cell therapy directed to senescence as much about uh, human microenvironment as there is about uh, COVID-19 so I, I, I definitely think that um, 
I don't want anyone to walk away from this asking the question about whether um, business as usual is going on. Business as usual is going on. Um, my strong advocation, and um, I'm pleased to hear our friends at BBB and others have heard it, uh, and indeed government has heard it, that um, the UK needs to now step up. Um, we have the, one of the most outstanding science bases in the world. We have great entrepreneurs and we have a functional and um, attentive venture community. And what we now need to do is put those things together as, as the field has been maturing um, with adequate um, growth capital to generate um, uh, um, thoughtful progression of those assets. Um, the time has come for the UK to step up and really mature into an organization, a, a country, UK PLC, where not only can we build those small outstanding biotechs, and I'm proud to have a number of those in my own portfolio, but to be able to curate them into much larger entities um, that can be the, the, the source of um, intellectual and, and capital and knowledge-based economy going forward. And I, I personally think that um, if you look at how the NBI has outperformed almost any other part of the, um, uh, the economy in the US, um, the, the public markets, that we, the UK, are poised with the right capital injection to achieve that. Um, right. So I, I, I slightly diverted your question. But I, the, the answer to your question, in my view, is if we build those structures, then all the therapeutic areas will benefit from the, the, the UK science ecosystem. So you're not concerned with the fact that there's so much, uh, you know, effort and finance going into sort of tackling COVID, not only in sort of, you know, sort of the wider economy, but actually also we can sort of see the amount of money that's, you know, being invested, um, you know, at, at the sort of scientific level in, in in COVID. You're not you're not worried that that's going to sort of, you know, to be the detriment of of say, for example. You know, research into, into into dementia. I think I think there is a uh, temporary and unprecedented global need, and I think it's natural that there's been a bit of a diversion of um, time and resource. I think that as we come out of lockdown, and I think the UK has behaved very well. I think personally that we have flattened the peak and our um, uh, the second peak. Is, I hope will be well controlled. We all trust in, in Kate and her team and the UK government. I think that that diversion will revert. And um, I, I don't see this as anything other than a wrinkle, actually. And I, 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 I applaud all those. I'm humbled, actually, by those that work with us and for us who've soldiered on through this period in our companies to, um, to carry on with business as usual. And, and they need to be supported by the appropriate financing to take those assets all the way through to clinic and ultimately to licensing. Okay. So, so as a sort of, as a final point, um, and sort of, you know, sort of, again, sort of looking at what's going on sort of, um, in that sort of neurodegeneration space, um, you know, we, in the past sort of decade or so, we've seen sort of a revolution in the immunology where, you know, sort of scientific breakthroughs have really, really made a meaningful difference to the sort of the, sort of the clinical and the, and the patient experience. Do you think that that, what, 
you know, what, what, what's the possibility that we might see you know, a similar uh, revolution um, in the, the treatment of conditions such as you know, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease? So, so the lesson from human oncology um, for a Neanderthal like me is that all of those successes came out of decades of basic science research, um, which which was not sexy. You know, the work of people like Jim Allison, Drew Padal, uh, and others um, uh, required substantial uh, blue sky thinking and support and took decades of fundamental research to come to fruition. I mean, oncology didn't drop out of the sky. It required a lot of hard grind to get it to where it was. It required thoughtful um, investment at, at the venture and biotech level um, for companies like uh, Medirex that ended up being uh, subsumed with the MS um, and, and, um, uh, and obviously Merck with their franchise who uh, had the roots of discovery for their molecule in the UK, of course, um, and MRCT, I guess, as, as it was, and LifeArc as it is now. So uh, my, my sense is that um, with the quickening of the pace of fundamental research, we mustn't allow that to be stalled. Um, we must uh, support it um, through the taxpayer and otherwise. Um, uh, those discoveries will come through. And as I've said already, I think supporting the venture community, particularly early, but also later, to support uh, clinical assets will mean that we will see, I think, mushrooming of opportunities like immuno-oncology, but in areas like um, neurodegeneration, auto-inflammatory disease, orphan diseases, um, we'll see novel therapeutic modalities uh, addressing uh, targets in the most amazing ways. So I'm um, supremely optimistic that with the right ecosystem, we will achieve that everywhere. We should take our inspiration as we all have from him in oncology. Great, great. Human, thanks very much for, for, for taking the time to, uh, to talk to me today. Um, you know, those insights and, and in fact, you know, those, those recommendations, I'm sure are going to resonate with you know, many in our, in our audience. So if you'd like to uh, tune into future conversations in healthcare, follow our LinkedIn page um, where we will be posting alerts to, to, to future episode releases. So in closing, I, I'd like to, to thank uh, Human again for, for, for joining us and thank all our listeners for tuning in. So until next time, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode.